This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. where if anyone ever knew anything about clay court tennis they certainly don't anymore uh today we're going to talk about all sorts of things we've just had the monte carlo masters we've also had one of the busiest sports news days possibly ever uh we were just discussing off air but we will try and avoid any talk of the european super league although we're kind of duty bound to because novak Djokovic has had his say courtesy of the great luigi gatto we know exactly what he had to say yes george you make that face but he did have his say because Luigi Gatto tweets everything that the man says at any point in the day, uh, no matter what the topic. Uh, we'll talk about the hairiest Masters final in history, uh, how the clay just isn't the same anymore. Um, when George met Rafa, the big news is there. Nothing happened. Uh, they just think they're better off as friends. Uh, why Roger Federer has decided that Geneva is in the spring is nicer than Madrid. And he's wrong, by the way, because there is nowhere nicer than Madrid in the spring, quite frankly. Um We'll also discuss our dream drinking doubles pairs, uh, Team GB's win over Mexico, which was thankfully behind closed doors, and of course any other business. Uh, George, you've had a, a nice day trying to plug a Rafa Nadal interview that no one's interested in. Uh, how are you? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm good. Uh, I would say people were <laughs> interested. It, 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 there was some traction in the tennis world uh, okay. from it. Which it just definitely, it, it definitely wasn't the. Uh, the biggest, the biggest story of the day, or the second. No, story. And it, no, it wasn't. But you know, this, this is just what happens, isn't it? Whenever you that, have that... something you want to be seen, it, something inevitably comes up. But yeah, I, I was still quite pleased. I had quite a lot of nice feedback on it. So okay, I'm, good. I'm well, we'll talk about that uh, more in a moment. I said we wouldn't talk too much about the European Super League, but Calvin is, you know, part of the Man United community, and therefore I assume will be joining a sort of conglomerate European tennis podcast in the next couple of weeks, Calvin. Is there still a standoff or are we going to have to have some <laughs> contract negotiations? Um, I can't, um, I've not seen the full proposals and um, I can't <laughs> comment at this present time. 
well, well <laughs> that's, I, I don't know what that means. I don't, I don't know what that means, but that's just what I've seen every footballer answer with today. So um, that's what I'm going with. Good. I mean, to be fair, you've had a, a lifetime of watching tennis players not answer questions as well. So it's not as though you haven't, haven't yeah. learned how to do it. Um, hello to Rhonda, who joined us live on, on Locker Room. Remember that you can always come and join us live on the Locker Room app. Uh, just download it for your iPhone. You can listen at 8 o'clock UK time uh, every Monday night. Uh, we have to start today with Stefanos Tsitsipas. He picked up a win in Monte Carlo. He beat Andre Rublev in straight sets. Uh, it was a fine run to the final as well. Beat some informed players, some clay court players. Uh, Karat serve, Christian Garin, uh, the very exciting Alex Davidovich Fakina, um, and of course Dan Evans, new newfound clay court specialist as well. Um, George, it was a, a really good week for Stefanos. We we know, and I think he's underrated by quite a lot of people, but we know Stefanos is a good clay court player, don't we? Yeah, I think I think we know that Sissipas is a very good player everywhere now. Um, he's having hmm. a very consistent year. I don't think he's not been uh, past the quarterfinals of any tournament he's played. Um, and I, I just think there's a bit more assuredness, I would say, about him. Like, I... I don't fear for him in early rounds of tournaments at the minute. I feel like he's just kind of going about his business pretty well. Um, whether he's got it in him to be beating, say, a Rafa or a Novak over five sets on their favoured surface uh, at a slam, I'm not sure just yet. But I think we'll see him picking up a few Masters this season. And I'm expecting a first Grand Slam final if he gets the right draw somewhere. I mean, do, do you specifically mean Roland Garros? No, I actually don't specifically mean Roland Garros. I think it, I know we're going to talk a bit about team later, but I, I feel like team is still the the best clay quarter who's not Rafa. Um, but of course, Rafa w- won't necessarily w- be one or two, will he? So I guess him and team are going to be on different sides. And then would Sissipas beat Novak over five? I mean, he didn't in the French last year, but he he got a, gave a pretty good account of himself there. I, I reckon he might fancy himself in that this time. I. I think I think the French is arguably the toughest in some ways. Like, I think if you avoid Djokovic on a hard court slam, you've got a good chance of getting to the final um, in terms of the draw. Same, I suppose, for the clay, but them teams so strong and Djokovic is still kind of kicking around. So I, I reckon US Open, he'll get to the final if he gets the right draw. OK, well, you picked an all-court player and then said he's going to get to the final. The hard court slam, of course. That's fine. That's such a judgment, nevertheless. Um, Calvin, Calvin, do you think he's he's well set up on clay? Are there are there any is there anything I know that when he met Rafa in Australia, you picked out one particular shot that you, you didn't fancy, and of course you turned out to be wrong. So um, just just to caveat everyone listening uh, of your technical abilities, but I mean he he is set up well on clay, isn't he? He's just a good all court player. He's just he's just a pretty complete player. I still don't particularly like his backhand when he's rushed on it and when he's put up high, I still don't like the look of it. I think it's a bit of an ugly looking shot, which mm. uh, is strange because all his other shots look aesthetically really nice. Um, but he, he's just such a skillful player. He's so athletic. He moves so well. He's got such a good feel and he can, can really hit the ball as well. So I, 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 it could be any of the service. It wouldn't surprise me if he ends up going really deep in Wimbledon either. Mm. He, He's obviously had a good run in, in Monte Carlo. He beat good players. I mean, the matchup with Andre Rublev, amazingly, he he was actually an underdog with the bookies for that match. I don't think any of us, I actually 
don't think we discussed it in the chat in the end, but I think it, I don't think any of us would have backed that um, Rublev to win that match. I found it particularly telling. Uh, I saw a statistic that ninety-one percent of Tsitsipas's second serve returns were on the forehand side. Now that seems like quite a naive thing to do on Rublev's part. I mean, obviously, I know he runs around things and, and sits quite deep, but Georgia or either of you, I suppose, but. That seems like a, a mistake to have made. I know it's quite a random stat to have pulled out, but second serve was a, a big win <laughs> that's, for TT. That's an ongoing thing with Rublev. It's a major problem. He, he doesn't mix things up. And I've seen it with both mm-hmm. sides where I think there's a match whoever he lost to in the Australian Open. Who did he lose to out there? Medvedev. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And there was, there was a similar thing there where he was just kept repeatedly serving his second serve to the backhand. Um, and there's no mix-up, and I, I, I certainly wouldn't have had him as underdog. I think the player, the type of player that Rublev struggles with, the type of player who've got skills, good hands, they can got a good slice, they can move the ball around a bit, change up the paces, change up the rhythms. He doesn't like that. That's why Dan Evans has got such a good record against him. So I, I, I if he played City Pass twenty times, I think he probably loses eighteen of them. Mm. George, do you think Rublev has got much, much to give on clay? Well, I think if you can beat Rafa on clay, you've automatically proven you do. Um, mm. I, I think we, we've said it a few times about Rublev, haven't we? I'm still not convinced he's going to win a slam. I think he's playing really, really well and really, really good stuff. But of all this generation, I, I almost I see him quite far down the pecking order to actually get over the line and win one. Um, mm. And, and my, my opinion is starting to change a little bit. I, I was re- like, you played really well against Rafa. Rafa wasn't at the races. But to still come through that match in the manner he did was really, really impressive. Um, but I don't know what it is about me. I, I just can't get my head on board that he's actually going to go through and win a slam. I, th- I think it might be because he's, he's kind of the opposite of what I'd say with, with Sitsipas, that Sitsipas is this all-court player. He has so many different ways to win games. Rublev's very sort of one-dimensional. This is how he's going to play, and he's either going to win or he's not. And I don't, I don't see him as a great problem solver. And I think to win a slam, you're probably going to have to solve a few problems along the way. The the argument against my argument and what Calvin's saying there, I suppose, is you can just have a two weeks where you're like a Marin Cilic at the U.S. Open. That that can happen, can't it? Where just everything kind of comes together and you have the perfect storm. And I suppose maybe there'll be a few more of those tournaments where. You know, someone like Rubev doesn't necessarily need to problem solve that much because you don't have a guarantee of facing a Nadal, Djokovic or Federer in five years' time and the other guys may not be as consistent and drop out early. And he's shown he's so good at bulldozing his way past lesser opposition. But I'm just not convinced he'll get to a Grand Slam final and take out like a Medvedeva team, a Sinner in the future, um, Sissipas, you know. that. But he might win one. I don't know. Maybe I'm being harsh. So, so I mean, just to kind of focus back in on on last week, the win over Nadal, George. I mean, what do you what do you put it down to? I know it, it was the conditions that Nadal was perhaps most vulnerable in because it was later in the day and and there were certain kind of atmospheric conditions where you might fancy yourself. But is it as simple as that? Well, I put it down to Nadal's serve was terrible. Um, mm. To be honest, like. Like astonishingly bad for him. Like he was really rolling in that second serve, and there were times where, and he kind of said this in his post match press. He kind of said, "You have a big problem when all you're thinking on your serve is just get this in." You know that that's, <laughs> I mean, that's not how I'm you want to be. Kind of a... serve, to be honest, like that. <laughs> yeah. 
Uh, I admit I don't play at a similar <laughs> level. Yeah. Um, so, I, 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 you know, he was aware that was a big problem. His backhand also wasn't that good. I think with Rublev, if you let him get on top of the point early on, dictate with his forehand, he can really bully you. And you know, I was impressed how much he was like hitting Nadal off the clay consistently. Um, and he, he doesn't even need to necessarily find the lines. He's got such good power that it can be like a foot in um, and still be like pushing Rafa back. But I would just suggest that Nadal, when it comes around to a, another tournament he, where he's not serving that badly, Rublev would find it harder to get on the front foot that quickly. Um, mm-hmm. So I th- I'd say that was the big thing. Uh, but it was a bad day of the office for Rafa. It happens. You know, he lost to Fonini. I don't think he's actually won Monte Carlo since 2018 now because he obviously lost there to Fonini, didn't he? And then, um, you know, so let's just say I, I'm not drawing any big conclusions on the French Open based on this. Very good. Um, you obviously spoke to him before this tournament and the interview then um, took time to, to come through uh, or, or under embargo, I suppose you would technically say. Um how did you find him generally? I think you said that you enjoyed his company, to say the least. Are you, are you sorry? My Wi-Fi just went. Then was that aimed at me on Rafa? Yes, George. Uh, sorry, Rafa's I came back. Out. You interviewed him. He's quite handy at tennis. <laughs> yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. Um, you know, it, it was a really kind of fun, pleasant chat. It was on the day that the uh, pubs were kind of reopening in the UK and he was uh, signed up with a beer company. That was the kind of premise of the conversation. So it was, um, you know, there was quite a lot of just fun stuff. You know, he was saying don't get too drunk and stuff and having a bit of a laugh. Um, yeah, it was a good conversation. And, uh, you know, I think, well, certainly the feedback today has been pretty positive. I think people enjoyed it. Um, it was it was fun to do. Um, he's a nice guy, Rafa. I've always quite liked him, even though we've had our moments in the in the press room. Uh, you know, he's one of the people who people say behind tour, like, you know, behind the scenes on tour is always like speaking to, I suppose, and, and put this in inverted commas, you know, the lesser people, you know, he goes out of his way. He's quite a genuine person who um, takes time. And, you know, it, he, he I, I felt that, I felt that way in the interview. You know, you know, sometimes you speak to players and it's like, oh, I really don't want to be here. I'm hating it. You know, he, he did kind of actively engage and stuff. Um, in terms of what he said, uh, for those of you who've not read the interview, the, the line that's been picking up the most traction on uh, social media today is uh, him, where he kind of stopped himself as he he called Djokovic obsessed um, about <laughs> winning records, and then speaks about his own himself having like a healthy ambition, um, and he was kind of comparing what motivates them. Um, which has obviously not gone down well with the uh, Djokovic fans, but um, I mean, no, nothing yeah. has done well with Djokovic fans. We know this. Um, I mean, it's an interesting point, isn't it? Because what I always say, especially about, I mean, especially about Rafa Nadal, but especially about tennis players and individual sport sportists, um, is that they they are all of them. Like you don't get to that point, you know. E- even and dare I mention his name, lest Calvin loses it. Even Nick Kyrgios is a bit obsessed with tennis, or at least was at a point. Because, I'm sorry, much as he might like to portray this image that he plays tennis a couple of times a week for a laugh and just happens to be, like, all-time good, that's just not true. It just doesn't happen like that. So um, I, I think, to an extent, they're all obsessed with tennis. 
Um, I suppose what what he was talking about there was Novak being obsessed with with records, and 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 I'll say it again: they're all pretty obsessed with records because it, it's always telling. Because if you ask them, or you get one wrong when you ask them, they always pull you up on it because they know all the stats, like to a level that I think probably we can't really relate to. Like even in our jobs, you know, we know. I don't know exactly how many months we've been in a job or exactly how many hours we worked last week. Whereas they know that to, to the nth degree. So uh, I know people get jumping up and down about it and people are calling him salty. And like, it's incredibly clear from, from the way you've written as well, George, because I know how much you hate to upset people and um, that he's not, you know, having a go or being salty. He's right, isn't he? Of course, they're all obsessed by records. Well, there was, it was quite a funny moment because in the interview, when he when he started that sentence, he goes, you know, Novak is obsessed by these things. And I, I, I kind of lifted my eyebrows. <laughs> just Always a mistake in an interview. Then, <laughs> then you're know they've said something wrong. It's so hard to keep your face, especially when you're not in the room with them, you're on the face. And he just quickly went... And he, he frantically started waving his hand, shaking his head, saying, <laughs> I don't mean this in a bad way. I think he just saw the headlines that were coming. And, and to be fair, have still come from other places who've ripped the quotes off um, later yes. in the day. Um, you know, Novak's obsessed, says Rafa sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, it, I think Rafa, what you, and what you, I guess the question is how much you believe Rafa when he says all this stuff. I mean, he seems very genuine in terms of how he kind of, says I'm always just focusing on what I'm doing, not anyone else. I don't care about what my rivals are doing. You know, I just, it, it, you know, that's a very different way of speaking about it to how Novak and Roger do. You know, Novak actively mm. says, I want to beat these guys. I want to break these records. Yeah. Um, Calvin, we talk a lot about <laughs> mindset and, and player mindset. I mean, I'm sure you've worked with players who who haven't had that, you know, elite level of mindset but it, it does you know you often say that at a certain level the guard you know the skill level in the top 200 for example isn't that different is it mindset that sets those guys apart is that why Federer, Djokovic and Nadal are who they are it, it's one of the things that sets them apart but then you could look at it and say it's difficult to tell, isn't it? Because some people are more, it's more open, it's more visible. Like, would, if Federer hadn't won as many matches as he, as he has, would you know that he's an obsessive performer, an obsessive competitor? I mean, you know, he looks pretty chilled out and he, apparently he's not the world's best trainer. He likes to train for sort of, some, some days he trains for half an hour and then sort of says he can't be bothered training anymore. Whereas Nadal is more, more of a four hours a day type guy. So if Federer hadn't been so successful, you can imagine there are people going, well, I just didn't have the mindset for it. But the guy's a relentless winner. So The, the, the training thing's really interesting because you, you can go and obviously watch these guys at tournaments and do it. Um, and Rafa, you know, he's such an intense bloke permanently. He's always like charging around like it's the real yeah. thing. And you see him get annoyed at people who don't like hit the ball back to him because he you know, kind of yeah. make a mistake. Um, and obviously these guys, a lot of them are like 15, 16 or whatever, and you like, can kind of tell he's getting a bit annoyed when it's not going back to him. Djokovic has always said, oh, I can't, I can't just turn up and play. I need to like seriously long practice. And yeah. then Roger, he's always like, oh, I can just 
turn up and have a hit and know it's going to be fine and I'll just do it in the match. And I don't really yeah, buy... It's, it's I, I, I don't buy Roger. Like I, I've seen him train, though. He, I, he is, I, yeah, I know people who trained with him. I know people who trained with him and said that he's some days he'll come out and he'll hit, he'll hit balls for half an hour and say, that'll do for today. Um, and and that, that's it. But I think going back to mindset though, I think it's, it's shades of gray all the time. It's not just they've either got it or they haven't. You have some people who have a real, real elite level obsessive mindset to the degree sort of, we're talking about Murray, Djokovic, Nadal, where you wonder like what their lives look like when there's nothing to compete for at the end of it. And, and you, you know, that's a sort of serious, uh, you know, it's a serious question because, you know, I always wonder with people, like even with these guys, like even sort of, you know, when you sit, you look at Roy Keane, you think that's that's a pretty unhinged individual. And <laughs> and if it wasn't for that he was very good at football and therefore is very rich, what would his life look like? Because you don't imagine he'd be able to put something together <laughs> out, outside of that. Uh, and, and I think, you know, and I think a lot of these guys, I guess, you know, because they've had their families and that kind of thing that, that balances it out. But I, I, you know, some of these guys, they just can't, they can't comprehend it. And I think that's the real elite level of mindset is sometimes you'll get guys who, who enjoy winning, but then you'll get the elite level who they enjoy winning, but losing absolutely destroys them. And it's the losing, the, the the fear of losing that drives them rather than the obsession with winning. And that for me, it sounds counterproductive, but that, that for me is, is the real elite level of mindset. I think, um, you know, mindset is such an interesting thing as well, because you can, you can look at other players who I, I count as having like really, really good mindsets, like a David Ferrer, for example, like someone who just would go out there and compete nonstop. But the reality was he's five foot eight and, you know, or less yeah. than that doesn't have the weapons to kind of do it. You know, are we, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if we would say Ferrer has the elite mindset or not, but some probably would kind of say, you know, this guy was someone who gave it all mentally, but just didn't have all the tools to win. Um, yeah. And, it's kind of an interesting. And, and again, I think he, he's kind of got the textbook great mindset. He's, he's, he's sort of charging around, he's pumping his fist and that kind of thing. And, you know, you come across guys who are not like that, but they're real, real serious competitors like like you know and it's like as far as i understand it del potro is a serious competitor but he's not going around he's not a textbook guy and he's pretty chilled out off the court and that kind of thing so he's not a a sort of he's not a sort of Leighton hewitt getting pumped up and and at the same time i've i've seen i've seen players not not that level but i've seen juniors who are the opposite they're, they're always it's almost like a bit of an act they're getting their, they're getting they're getting pumped up they're getting the fist pump out and they're, they're charging round and you think yeah but i don't think you actually fancy it when it comes to <laughs> it um so yeah there's also a bit of sort of self kidology sometimes involved you see players sometimes really need something or looking for something to, to kind of get wound up about because they've, they've gone a bit flat. I mean, you know, Evo, Dan Evans is a really good example of that. He, you definitely see times when he decides to wind himself up because things aren't going his way and he, he gets a bit flat and, and he sort of needs that, that aggro and that angle. I remember talking to someone who hit with Dan quite a lot and to Calvin, you'll know him better than me, but I thought it was interesting that she said, oh, you know, you can't just hit with, with Dan because he's not really that interested. Like, if you if you want to do three cross and one line, he's not your guy. But if you want to play really competitive practice sets and, he, and he's, he's really into it, then he's exactly the person you want because he, 
sort of thrives off competition like that. Uh, I suppose yeah. that, that's just different personalities, isn't it? Yeah, he doesn't do any drills or that kind of thing. Everything is a game, even if it's like, well, you know, you'll you'll do the warm-up and then straight into right. Uh, you know, first two balls cross, first to 11. Um, and and winner puts fiver in the pot for the end of the end of the session, and then there's a volley yeah. game, and and everything everything's a game. Um, mm. So, is that pretty? Is that pretty common? Is that how a lot of guys get through? You know, relentless days of practice. No, I'd I'd say definitely not. He's the most extreme in that, but I quite like that. That's that's probably if I was remotely as talented as as he is at playing tennis, then that's probably <laughs> how I'd have trained. But you get other guys who just want to go through. Um, James Ward, for example, who I've had players practice with, he's, he's completely the opposite. He wants to hit cross-court balls for an hour and then wow. hit some serves and there's no points. Um, and I guess some of the, you tend to find that girls are, um, girls tend to be a bit more like that. They like to drill more. They don't yeah. like playing tie breaks, that kind of thing. Um, and then you get players in the middle. You, you know, you get, the strange, I always find a strange one is that Andy Murray is, been that he's played, he, his mum has always been quite a sort of advocate of uh, game-based um, training and that mm. kind of thing. But the couple of times when I've been on court with players training with Murray, he like he's quite closed. He likes to do his two cross one line, that oh, kind really? of thing. And yeah, so um, mm. it, yeah, it's interesting. So yeah, it's that court horses for courses thing, I suppose. Um, we we were briefly talking about Raf Nadar and got sidetracked. The ultimate horse for course. Uh, I might slightly controversially say, um, but appears to... Well, he's faltered on clay already this year, which, you know, we're used to Rafa arriving at Roland Garros, unbeaten, you know, with two or three titles in the bag, a favourite for, for the French Open. George, have you got any concern that he, he won't be an absolutely enormous favourite at Roland Garros? <laughs> uh, no, not really. Um, yeah, I, I think if you look at him that season, he lost... Um, to Fognini in Monte Carlo, and then mm. he was beaten by team in Barcelona. And he did just take, you know, he'd not played since the start of the year, and then it just took him a few weeks to kind of warm his way. And I'm expecting kind of similar thing this time. I mean, let's not forget, I mean, he won his first two matches without dropping so much as five games, I think. Um, yeah. So, you know, it's, it's very easy to get all doom and gloom about it. And even though he played terribly, he still clawed his way back into a third set against Rublev. And I don't know how he did that at the time. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm not too worried yet. But it's always it's always good to see him beaten on clay. It just gives a little bit more inspiration to someone like a Sissipas who is kind of normally looking at him like, God, how am I going to beat this bloke? He never loses. Um, mm. You know, he'll be thinking, Although, right, I've just chopped Rublev. He's going to take rap. Stefanos has been pretty upfront. I remember before the Australian Open, he said beating Rafa at the French is is one of my goals for the year. And it's mm. like it was like a. I found it enlightening that he said one of my goals. He was like, this isn't like the my sole thing. I have a whole lot of other stuff. Presumably <laughs> releasing some other terrible music. Um, but he he genuinely thinks that he can, and, and I I don't even think he thinks it's a big deal. I think uh, I spoke to him. Patrick Maratoglu about it afterwards because I'd seen it and and he said yeah that's that's just kind of how Steph sees it like he things are quite simple to him and I know he's um, got this mind coach who seems to have got him in a pretty good place as well um, kind of the other big shock in Monte Carlo this week or last week as it now is uh, was Novak Djokovic the number one seed 
uh, losing on Thursday. Um, he beat the, the match we thought he might lose, or at least might give us some entertainment, was against Yannick Sinner in the first round. And, and he went a breakdown and was a bit flat to begin with, um, but then fought back and won four and two. But then he lost to, um, you know, famous red dirter Dan Evans, as he definitely wouldn't describe himself. Uh, in straight sets, um, well, I'll give you my mum's assessment of it. She said, Novak, throw away a lot of points. Is that a fair <laughs> assessment, Calvin? Um, I, I didn't watch the match in full, as it happens. Um, I was playing golf that day. Um, <laughs> but, um, I, watched, I, I watched back on the highlights later on. Um, what I would say, though, and I kind of had some thoughts on this for a while, but I'm not saying that this guarantees you to beat Djokovic by any stretch or even makes you favourite, but I thought for a while that if you're going to beat him, a thing that would come in handy in your toolbox is a decent slice backhand. If mm. you look at the guys who've, who have as much success as anybody does against Djokovic because he has winning records against anyone, but if you look at Federer, Murray, Team, now Evans... Warinka, Sitsipas has got a couple of wins against him. They're all guys who can hit a pretty good slice backhand. And I, mm. I, it's, it's strange. I, it, it, there's nothing in his game that makes you think he'd struggle against a slice backhand. He doesn't have strange grips or anything, but all those guys do, and they're the guys who tend to... They're the only guys who tend to... I mean, Murray, yeah, Evans only played him once, but they're the guys who tend to have as much success against him as anybody does, I guess. Mm. George... I mean, is it an obvious weapon? Uh, I think your mum was spot on, to be honest. Um, and Dan kind of Dan said the same thing afterwards. I mean, like Dan played really well. Don't get me wrong, but this was a very odd performance from Novak. He cut, just looked like someone who couldn't be asked. Really didn't look bothered at all after. Well, weirdly, he did look bothered when he was like sitting at changeovers, but it almost felt like mm. so bothered. Like his his body language on court was just so weird. Um, I think, to be fair, some people have suggested there might be some sort of illness or injury going on. Um, well, certainly, people always suggest that, when, whenever he loses. Whenever it suits him, yeah. But it, 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 something wasn't right, you know what I mean? I mean, it, like, Dan played a really good match, but from Novak's end, it was just really strange. It just didn't like he cared. Um, but you still have to beat them. And, you know, these guys have made careers out of not playing their best and beating people. So, yeah, fair play to Dan. And he, you know... Beat David Goffin, who definitely was trying in the next round. Um, <laughs> beat, beat Hubert Hercats as well, who's just won a Masters tournament. So you know you can't really fault Dan Evans this week, uh, and he'll he'll remember that win over Djokovic for the rest of his life. Superb. A lot of guys I saw, lots of people quoted talking about because you know he, he had this run, and various people were interviewed and, and asked about him. And I saw, I think it might have been Titipas said, you know. Everyone has always known Dan can play on clay. He's he's sort of the only one. Was it Titi Pass, George? You're going to correct me. Goffin. It was Goffin. Ah, okay. But he 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 was the only one who didn't know that he could or think that he could play on clay. I mean, is that is that fair? Is that reasonable? Yeah. Well, I, I think again we've kind of we've had this little chat. Obviously, Calvin knows him pretty well, but we've had this kind of conversation. There's nothing obvious about Evans' game that means he shouldn't be able to play on clay. Like it's always just the movements, the thing you talk about. Is it going to be good enough? But in terms of his ability to, you know, 
you know, outfox and outthink opponents and like slice the ball cheekily and move things around. You know, I, there's no reason he can't. He's shown it this week. And it, Goffan was saying, you know, he's he, he knew Dan from like the lower levels when they were coming up because they're about similar ages. I think maybe Goffan's slightly slightly older, maybe a year older. Um, and he was like, you know, the only person Dan. I think he was talking about like Dan hating having like the red socks or something and. You know, kind of just never looking that comfortable and in his own mind thought he hated it. But yeah, it was certainly nothing I see holding back, but I'm sure Calvin can tell you if I've got a bad assessment there. <laughs> no, it's not a bad assessment at all. I, th- I think where people sort of mistake this kind of thing is that when you've got the career trajectory that, that Dana has, where he broke through relatively late into this level, is that there is no we, – we have this idea – people in, the, in tennis have this idea that there's, there are seasons. There's the, the hard court season, the clay court season, the grass, and then back on the hard. Whereas outside of the main tour, there are no seasons. You can find a clay court challenger somewhere in the world about nine months of the year. At the same time, if you want, you can play on hard court nine months of the year. Grass is a bit different. Grass only happens in the summer. But, and then, then you know, in the, in the winter – Either Well, no, in the winter, you can probably find those tournaments. They're just in different climates. So it, it was more it, he he chose not to play on the clay because he would prefer to play on the hard courts up until when he broke through to the top 100 of a few years ago. And then in, since he broke through to the top 100, he wouldn't have played any clay last year. The year before that, I think he was pretty close to just coming back from his ban, was he? Would that have been mm-hmm. around then? Sounds all right. So, so 2000, 2019 would have when he was coming back from his ban, or was that 2018? 18, 18, I think. 18, 18. He came back, and, right. So, when my, my dad said to me the other day when, when Djokovic had won that, oh, that's the first time that, uh, when Evans has won, that's the first time he's won a match on clay since 2017. And it would be more that, as, as the way things have panned out, he's probably just not played a whole lot on it. But mm. it, there's no reason at all why he shouldn't be able to play on clay. But as with all British players, you wouldn't necessarily choose to play on clay unless you were getting in the Masters tournaments. And if you're not getting the Masters tournaments, there's usually a hard court tournament that you can play instead. Just just to uh, clarify on your seasons, as we well know, the, the two only oh, distinctions you need are <laughs> 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 and unnatural surfaces. Um, but, but yeah, no, and, and in... Just the same in, in sort of challenges and futures. Challenges a bit more, but in futures there are very few indoor tournaments. Like you play, you play most of the futures circuit is played outdoors. You can always find a tournament somewhere outdoors. Challenges a bit more indoors come into it. So the guys who spent longer playing challenges, or the guys who spent long the most majority of their career kind of ranked between two fifty and one hundred, they'll just tend to play just the surfaces that they like playing on the best. Mm. Interesting. Um, well, a good run for Dan anyway, and he's up to a career-high ranking of 26. I was just saying, let's not forget his doubles run as well. Back-to-back Masters 1000 yeah. doubles finals. I mean, that's unbelievable. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, with Neil, Neil Skupski. Neil Skupski's won from like 12 of his last 14 matches. Point to prove since being uh, cast off by Jamie. And it, uh, he'll, feel, he'll feel vilified as well, will we'll Evo now, because famously... About, probably about a year ago, 18 months ago, where he expressed his displeasure that doubles players were actually serious tennis players. And <laughs> he, 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 he thinks that they're just singles players who weren't very good at singles. And 
his whole point was that if he chose to play doubles, he could be as good as any of the doubles players and kind of <laughs> proven himself right. <laughs> well, he's, uh, he's, num- he's, he's number five in the race, isn't he? And I think he's 11 in the singles race. So imagine if Dan right. was turning up to Turin in singles and doubles this year. Has anyone, well, I mean, I assume someone must have done, but has anyone ever played the singles and the doubles in the... Well, there used to be... They the used doubles to be is quite new, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. The, well, they used to always have the doubles, but they were different events. Different places, so, yeah. Yeah, so um, I don't think anyone... Ha- I can't remember anyone having done it. Um, well, I'd and really also, like they, cha- they, they recently changed the rules on doubles entry. So it used to be that you could only get into the doubles based on your doubles ranking, and the top guys didn't have doubles ranking, so they couldn't get in. But a, a few years ago, sort of three or four years ago, they changed it so... You could get whichever it's now you get in on whichever's highest your singles or your doubles ranking. I might have totally made this up, but is I'm trying to think if anyone other than McEnroe will have won both the singles and the doubles tour finals. Full stop. So he obviously I mean, there, won it quite a few times. There, there were some singles players who do have big doubles wins, like Stick won Wimbledon with McEnroe, didn't he? Mm. Um, Michael Stick won the Wimbledon doubles with McEnroe. Um, I think 92, I'm going to say. So, but, you know, there's there's occasional one who comes through, but they tend not to now just with the sports science and they want the rest and that kind of thing, which made it, yeah, you've got to give credit to Evo for last week because most players would have pulled out of the doubles once they get into the quarterfinals of the singles. And he didn't. He kept going all the time and he was was right up for the end of every match Mm. in the doubles. I'm struggling to find a big ATP Finals singles player who's also won a big doubles title. So if you can think of one, um, drop us a tweet at Love Tennis Pod uh, on Twitter. Uh, I, was I mean, Alex, the, for that re- sorry, James. Yeah, for on. that reason, James, what what they use, what they what they tend to do and is not ideal is they'll pl- a lot of them will play them and then, as I said, once they get to the last stage of the singles, they just pull out. Nadal, mm. there was a stage when Nadal would always tend to be in the doubles draw somewhere <laughs> and then, then just withdraw after two matches. Mm. Okay, slightly bizarre. Um, let's let's move on. Um, I was going to give you 20 seconds of Daniil Medvedev. I'll make it five. Uh, he got COVID uh, and had to pull out uh, and was practising with Rafa Nadal the day before he tested positive, but that made no difference to anyone. I don't want to get into COVID protocol stuff. I think it's boring and I'm kind of over it after two years. So that's <laughs> just 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 wanted to pay lip service to it, but I think if we spend yeah. too long talking about who should and shouldn't be self isolating, it's going to feel like being on holiday. Uh, I do want to talk though about Dominic Team, um, who's not someone we've heard a huge amount from uh, in the last couple of weeks and months because he's been managing uh, a foot injury. Um, we also find and found out thanks to an excellent interview he gave uh, to an Austrian title, um, Der Standers. Uh, which is a um, sort of uh, Austrian newspaper, I suppose, um, that he's kind of been going through the ringer mentally as well, which I suppose this is going to sound strange to say. I'm never surprised when a tennis player come out, comes out and says this because I think it's a very mentally challenging sport on a number of levels. But it, I suppose you're surprised when they come out and talk about it so openly, and that is what he did. Um, there were some really interesting quotes. The one that uh, it was led on, the story was, Ich bin in ein Loch gefallen, um, which I won't need to translate for most listeners, but for those who don't speak German, it, it says, I fell into a hole. Um, I had chased this dream for 15 years, 
winning the US Open. When I reached this goal, some things fell apart. I feel empty. I haven't even watched the Monte Carlo matches. So he clearly, you know, achieved a massive goal in winning that US Open. And yeah, he kind of spent the next, I suppose, eight months going to pieces a little bit. You know, we we saw that in Australia, I think, when he, you know, played some very strange matches. He lost to Berrettini in the ATP Cup. I really couldn't understand what was going on there. Um, he obviously was struggling with an injury against Dimitrov in, in the Australian Open, but was beaten in three sets, got bageled at the end. And, you know, there's this foot problem ongoing. Um, George, you know, he's someone who we've always regarded as pretty sturdy uh, mentally. We've talked to our mindset earlier in this podcast. Maybe not someone who you would have expected to come out and talk about things in these terms. No, possibly not. I mean, I, I, the player who jumped to mind quickly after these comments was actually Simona Halep. Um, after she mm. won her won the French Open, um, she then came to Wimbledon a couple of weeks later and just said she couldn't get over the high of winning that Grand Slam after what felt like such a hard effort to get um, that particular title, um, and then kind of just wasn't mentally ready for Wimbledon. Um, that that sprung to mind. The other one that also sprung to mind a little bit was kind of kind of Djokovic a little bit. Um, mm. You know when he won. All that stuff in uh, 2016, you know, holding the Grand Slam, finally getting over the line at the French. I think uh, it's really interesting when you do kind of achieve your goal, I suppose, and then just have to, like, recalibrate. And particularly in tennis, like, this again, just to heart back to this Nadal interview a bit, you know, he, he was quite keen to kind of hammer home the point that he's never had time to think about anything being that good because he's always playing again the week later and, I think sometimes it's, you know, team pretty much would have won that US Open and he was playing another Grand Slam, what was it, three weeks later, um, yeah. two weeks later, the French Open. So it wasn't like he had much time to, you know, and that's a big surface change as well, hard to clay. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I, I, it's interesting where when this kind of does catch up with people. Um, I, I think he'll be back and fine. I, I don't actually have serious long-term worries about him, but... I just wanted to make the point, I don't think he's the first person to have this happen. Um, but you're yeah. right, it is quite rare to to admit that. I suppose in the men's game it's rare because only three or four blokes have really been winning these tournaments for <laughs> such a long time. But, uh, yeah. you know, it does happen. Yeah, he, he, I thought it was very interesting. Um, he also said talked about the pandemic and, and the bubble. And, and he said, you know, um, the pandemic's taken away lots of the positives of tennis, you know, the going out for dinner or the traveling around the world. And I kind of, you know, empathize with that to an extent. And he also said something very interesting about Dan Evans, um, which he says, for some like Dan Evans or Alexander Bublik, life in the bubble is even more of an advantage. They have difficulty concentrating on sport in normal times. For them, it's great <laughs> there. They focus only on tennis since there is nothing else. Um, which That's not quite worked maybe- for Benoit Pair, has it? <laughs> no, I think he then did say something about Benoit Pair, um, more or less being the same thing, but in a different way. Um, I, I just think it's interesting that, you know, we've talked about it and kind of hinted at it and speculated that for some players, bubble life has worked in terms of training. But but funny, funny fans are just basically call out Dan Evans for being a bit of a, well, anyway, lots of things that I can't really say about. <laughs> They're probably libelous. Um, but we might actually come up in our later Dream Doubles conversation, so... 
uh, we'll maybe leave it for them. But but good on good on Dominic for kind of coming out and and being so open about that stuff. You know, he he is part of this newer generation of of male players who hopefully do feel more comfortable talking in those terms. I know not everyone of that next gen is quite so enlightened, um, but I won't mention any Sasha names. Um, so, you know, it's important for, for people to talk in those terms, and I wanted to draw attention to it. Um, thanks to Quentin Mouigne, um for drawing my attention to it on Twitter, the as-ever-excellent French journalist. Um, I mentioned our dream doubles there. Uh, our dream doubles theme this week is in celebration of the pubs having been open. They've been open for a week in the UK. Um, if, if you don't know, we've been in lockdown in the UK on and off for the last year, and the pubs reopening has pretty much been the the main flag for uh, life returning to normal. Because in the UK, that's pretty much all we do. Like we're either in the pub or not. They're the two statuses of being. Um, so that was a huge one. Um, the reason I'm the strange colour I am, as anyone on the Zoom will be able to see, is because I spent most of the weekend in beer gardens. And as such, our dream doubles theme is the best two tennis players to go on a night out with or to go drinking with. Uh, I'm going to start with you, George, because I know that you've given it the least thought, so you can get it out of the way. <laughs> You'll notice at the start of the show when you said <laughs> we're going to do our dream doubles, I, I went, oh dear, yeah, but with a stronger term and <laughs> suddenly yeah, started yeah. doing my research during the show. Um, I, I just want a point of clarification just based on how you said okay. that. Yeah. So... Is it night out or to go for a drink with? Because I think they're two very, very different things. And I have two very, very different criteria. I'll leave it open (laughs) to your interpretation and explanation, George. You can have one of each if you want. You know, a bloke to go for a Tuesday night drink with and a bloke to go for a Friday through Sunday session. I'm I'm, going to take a lady in the pub, actually. Okay. If that's okay. Um, Yeah, I'm going to take Ash Barty. Okay. I think she loves a beer. We saw those pictures of her going to a game. I reckon she's just got good general kind of good pub pub vibes. So yeah, okay. I'm going for her. For, I, don't, I wouldn't back her necessarily for a night out, but for a good few beers in the pub. I reckon okay. after that, it'll be good. Chill out good, solid, good solid chat. Okay. Um, I, I have a short list for my night out. Um, <laughs> you I've been trying to one, narrow it down. You're definitely going to knock out some of ours. Well, I'm just going to talk you through. I think I've picked my winner, but I just want to tell you my thought process. So I was kind of, kind of thinking like Fonini. I thought that would just be quite nuts. <laughs> yeah, like... get his rap. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, I, I just... the thing is, George, I don't think we can we can condone that because you get enough scraps on nights out as it is. <laughs> you don't need you and Fabio double teaming. <laughs> So he, he, I thought, might be too much of a loose cannon. So I, I'm, I'm benching him. He, he's one of like a six. I don't want him one-on-one, basically. Yeah. It's too too much reliability. Uh, similar Benoit pair, I think, would be out for about 10 minutes and then he'd be off doing other things. So he's he can be in a squad, <laughs> but things. not on his own. Uh, yeah. Evo was probably my silver medalist. Um, I've seen Dan on nights out before. He seems like he's having a good time. Um, yeah. So he, but my number one is actually going to be Stan Vavrinka, who I have on good authority. Is uh, loves a good night out, uh, good fun, and uh, I think just generally would be a good guy to go and have a see, see the night away. I mean with, that so. that would explain why he's a stone overweight at the beginning of every season. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
like you know, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to throw stones from my enormous glass house here. <laughs> you're not, you're not cleaning anything on those washboard abs, are you? Uh, so I can only assume that's that's maybe why. Um, Calvin, who have you gone for in your your dream drinking team? Um, I've got as usual. I always feel like I go like former players. I, I assume that's that's fine to go with like oh, historical course, yeah, yeah. players. I yeah, mean, you're uh, old, in, you know yeah, true. Uh, in, <laughs> in their prime, of course. Yeah. So, um, first of all, Marit Safin, who yes. I reckon would have. That's well, I, I actually have it on good authority that he is a great night out. Uh, I know a couple of guys who've spent a couple of nights out with him, um, and just fantastic. Um, and then a bit more niche, the other one. Um, I, I love the idea of the scene of going out in New York in the early 80s where it was McEnroe, Borg, those guys who apparently did enjoy themselves in Studio 54. But those guys <laughs> get enough attention. So I'm going for their mate, uh, Vitas Garolitis. I knew was, you were going to say Vitas Garolitis. Uh, <laughs> apparently absolute party animal. So um, I, I reckon you couldn't not have a great... I, I think the attention might of the women might not be on me in that uh, that three ball. There, <laughs> but um, but Marin Safin famously, one of the great tennis scenes was when he turned up at the Australian Open with six uh, models watching all of his matches. <laughs> I think he won it that year as well. I mean, you must be doing something right then on a number of levels. Um, you won't be surprised to know that my first choice is Grigor Dimitrov because I don't think there's anyone in the world who wouldn't want to go for a drink of Grigor Dimitrov, male, female, straight, <laughs> or otherwise. Um, and, and realistically, you know, I, I'm not a single man, but once upon a time I was, and most of my top quality drinking was done in my singledom, I think Grigor Dimitrov would attract a crowd. And while they would be interested in him, I would also be And, you know, it, it's all about breaking the ice. And I feel like I could be the sort of the funny, the funny sidekick. Um, what was, what, what, what was um, Froome McMillan's great line on the Grigor Dimitrov? He enjoys the young ladies. No, it was something yes. more. It was something more. Sort of, he he does enjoy a female companion or something female like that. Female companion. That's exactly a young female companion. Yeah. I mean, for anyone who missed this, this was during the Australian Open, and Frew McMillan, who is a about one hundred and thirty years old, but is still commentating on tennis for Eurosport. God bless him. He he did in the middle of a match in a scene that I couldn't quite believe was happening in twenty twenty one. Complain that Grigor Dimitrov's inconsistency on tour was. Well, due to the fact that he was too consistent at the weekends, quite frankly. Um, and he used the phrase young female companions, which and, and then got agreement from the other side of the commentary box. I can't remember who he was on with, but they said, oh, yes, yes, the young female companions are really our Griggle's weakness. That was like 1974, um, which, which kind of leads me on to my, my second one. Uh, and it's kind of on the same on the same route, quite frankly, um, which is Guillermo Villas. Because I knew it. <laughs> just the most beautiful man you've ever seen. Um, he deserves a lot more out of life. Anyone who hasn't seen the documentary about him on Netflix, his quest to to become world number one, which has mostly happened after his career because he deserved it, but the rankings were skewed against him. So yeah, I'm taking the most beautiful two men I know in tennis on a night out, um, and we can play some doubles in the morning as well. Maybe some mixed doubles. Who knows? Let's move on. Um, <laughs> your favourite dream drinking doubles. I'll stick them on Twitter this week. I promise I will remember. And um, hopefully it'll be slightly less happening and I can. Uh, we've just got a little bit of time to cover off uh, the 
Billie Jean King Cup, which I have to keep remembering not to call the Fed Cup. George, you were down there at the NPC uh, for a win over Mexico, which was um, not unexpected in terms of result. No, it was not. And uh, don't worry about not being the only one to call it the wrong name. You you did call it the right name, to be fair, but um, pretty much everyone all weekend referred to it as the Fed Cup. And I think the most humorous one for me was when um, I think someone from the ITF had clearly been tasked to like go around to different conferences and like ask them why is it so important for like this to be called the Billie Jean King Cup for you, um, which I'm yeah. sure has appeared on their website now. Um, <laughs> and they asked Katie Bolter this and she gave this answer about why Billie Jean King meant so much to her while referring to it as the Fed Cup the entire time. <laughs> I, just, I, I, I just thought that was so funny. Um, but yeah. Uh, the, going back to the actual results, um, yeah, it was pretty straightforward. I mean, they were 2 0 up on Friday. Hiccup with Heather Watson in the morning. I have to say, it was really poor that match from Heather. Um, you know, she, and she was the first to admit it. Um, just ugh, couldn't get a serve in. Um, looked just a bit all over the place. Just, I, I don't know, she kept putting it in the net all the time, which I suppose happens to the best of us. Uh, but it, it was just one of those days where it didn't click at all. And she she kind of said afterwards, she thought, well, you know, there was no question of her attitude or whatever. It was just, I was really, really rubbish. <laughs> so, <laughs> did, did the best I could when I'm playing as badly as I am. Um, but I, Katie Bolt was really good, I have to say. Like, um, you know, I, I know these are matches that should be winning, but the manner of the second sets of both her matches, the performance, the kind of the big, heavy, accurate ball striking was pretty impressive um, up close and live this weekend. And mm. if she can start taking that into the tour, um, I think we'll be seeing her easily top 50 by next year. Easily. Wow. Um, of course, it was uh, behind closed doors other than a, a few select lucky journalists like George, you know, wrapped in a hazmat suit and sitting 30 feet away from anyone. Um, Calvin, I know you were gutted that there was no no crowd on site for a a British team tie. Yeah, it's the the only sporting event that is enhanced by not having the fans there. Um, (laughs) um, What's um, the big B in your bonnet about this? They're they're just the the worst fans in all of... Worst fans in all of sport. I mean, my... They just—I uh, can't be doing with them. Um, but, <laughs> I, but for the record, this is not a position held by the whole podcast, and I thought the fans would greatly miss this weekend. Just so I don't annoy oh, our core yes, listeners. I mean, this is something I should definitely include in the theme tune: is that all Calvin Beton's opinions are his own opinions, <laughs> not represent the rest of the podcast on any level. Um, in fact, it would be easier if people assumed that we have the opposite opinion to Calvin. And we'd get it <laughs> But yeah, no, no fans at the uh, the Billy Jean King Cup. You know, just coming back to what they call, I think because I I interviewed Harriet Dart um, ahead of the the week, and I found myself tripping over it as well and forgetting. And she also, you know, forgot to call it the right name as well. It's just quite difficult to say. I know you can't change change Billy King. I can't do it. Yeah. So we we had this conversation. It's. It's the fact it should be just two of the version. It should be like the Billie Jean Cup or the the King Cup or the whatever. Yeah. 
yeah. King Cup, but then that doesn't sound like it's about Billie Jean King. So they've got kind of traps in this thing. And of course, you can't call it the BJ Cup. <laughs> it's got to be. <laughs> <laughs> they've got to keep the K in there. It can't be the Billie Jean. I actually think the best option is Billie Jean Cup, but spell the cup with a K and just have her initials. The BJ <laughs> Cup. <laughs> no, <laughs> I think that's the only solution. Or as I gave my better solution you just have to pick a different person <laughs> like I think Billy Jean can't have just this after her just call it the Fed Cup yeah like you know I've had to explain to at least three people like over the weekend that it's it's what used to be the Fed Cup everyone's like what on earth is this that they're playing in now but <laughs> it's, just, it's just the Fed Cup I've got a couple of thoughts about the actual tennis there which um, or what went on after um, I, I thought it was a bit ridiculous that that they're celebrating it like they've won the whole thing. I mean, it was it was for all intents and purposes a friendly match because mm-hmm. I don't think anyone could go up. I don't think anyone went up if they won it, or George, or yeah. So down they, if... they do, they do technically go up into a playoff next year. So that it, it is it was a playoff to get into a playoff, right? And if they didn't win that, they would have gone into some more regional. Base yeah. things below, but, you know. So it's against it's against Mexico on an indoor court um, where all our players are ranked higher than their players. Um, and I know Anne well, and I don't think Anne would have signed off on. Uh, I'm saying I know well. I know her relatively well. Uh, I don't think Anne would have signed off on the over celebration at the end because she knows the levels and she knows the standards. Um, the players and the backroom staff. I was pretty. I just, I'm not saying disappointed in, but. I'm not, not even going to say I was surprised about, but I thought it was a bit bit pathetic that they're celebrating it like it was a huge win. Like, you know, you've got to... It, we're, we're here talking about world-class standards and levels and that kind of thing, and they need to just sort of think, right, yeah, it, we were expected to win, we won, on to the next one, let's get us back where we belong. But whenever these, whenever there's one of these um, Fed Cup or B- B- Billie Jean King Cup sort of things going on, it, it I just find it all a bit twee and the, like, the, the on-court celebration at the end, I, I just find it a bit much, like, give me a break. Well, I have to... Um, <clears throat> it's interesting you said... Um, you mentioned Anne there. I mean, she she kind of went for the, the team a little bit afterwards um, in terms of making quite pointed remarks about all of them should be doing a lot better and kind of suggesting some of the players aren't taking the focus on their career and they should all be top 100 and whatever. I mean, I, I don't know if it was directly linked to the celebrations or anything, but there was, she, she, she was quite clear. It wasn't a case of her coming into press afterwards, like, yeah, we've beat Mexico, go us. It, she came out and said, yeah, you all need to do a lot be better. Like. Yeah, and she's right. You know, there are players there who every one of them, you can go, you know. I mean, I guess Harriet's played a full season. The rest of them are always kind of like they're either not producing the results that they should be or they're always injured or on some sort of injury recovery or something. It needs to be better. It really does need to be better. They've got some ability in that team. They should be higher than what they are. Can I just ask a question about the format? This is quite naive. but um, (laughs) What is the format? So it's, it's four singles matches. Yeah, and there would be a doubles if they need a decider. I'm not sure. Hmm. It's top seed plays second seed, second seed plays top seed, and then two top seeds play each other first match on Saturday, and then it's two second seeds play each other, and then it would be a doubles if it's drawn. Okay, right. 
That, does that make sense? Are we happy with that? Because I still don't really understand it. But I mean, yeah, for I guess it's the same. It's the same as what Davis Cup men's used to be, except for the doubles used to be in the middle. But yeah, they now just play the doubles if they need uh, to play it. I think. All right. Okay. Um, fine. Well, as long as they can sort out the format and the name, it's otherwise a spot-on tournament. Um, <laughs> which, which we're in no danger of winning anytime soon because our number one player refuses to play in it, uh, and uh, we're not even in the finals uh, yet. Uh, but anyway, we'll 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 do our best. I'm sure it'll be fine. And uh, oh, and our captain's slagging off all the players. So other than that, <laughs> um, British women's tennis in rude health is not the news. Um, because we've now hit the hour mark or, or, or getting up that way, we've missed out a bloke called Roger Federer, who, who as I say, as I mentioned in the intro, um, has chosen Geneva over Madrid. Uh, we will cover that in sort of greater depth next week because it deserves a little bit of time spent on it. But it's not going to change uh, between now and then unless Roger picks up an injury, which is not entirely beyond the realm's possibility, but we may not know about it. Um, there's... Plenty of tennis going on this week uh, already in Barcelona. We've had two days of action. Um, they've got a new camera angle, which everyone on Twitter seems very excited about because it's lower down or higher up. Or Oh, I just don't care. Um, <laughs> there's also action in Belgrade, uh, in Stuttgart, in Istanbul. Quite sort of 90s uh, locations, just Stuttgart aside. Quite sort of, you know, old school 90s news location this week um i'm sure we'll talk more about them next week uh if you're listening to the podcast um i could really do with some reviews not of me personally of the podcast uh so wherever you are please leave us a review um hopefully a five star one uh because we're still trying to work off that one person who didn't give us a five star review about two years ago uh, <laughs> she didn't like our interview with katie swan which is fine you're allowed not to <laughs> like <laughs> what was it what was it Not like leading questions, questions or something? yeah too many Terrible. leading questions which um, well, i don't even think there really were were there george i can't, I can't remember. remember but yeah you know anyway look if you do leave us a bad review at least put your name and address so i can come around and tell you what i think about it <laughs> um, <laughs> otherwise leave us a good review uh make sure you give us a follow on twitter as well at love tennis pod uh, we'll be back next week. Remember, you can listen to us live on the Locker Room app at 8pm every Monday night. Wherever you are, stay safe and uh, try and get to the pub. Sports Social Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.